I think that was one of the highlights of my week is um, we had a little less volume coming from the front in the last couple songs and just getting to hear you guys. It's one of my favorite things actually about being a pastor is you always stand at the front of the church and you hear the voices of God's people um, just coming in waves from, from behind and your voices sound wonderful. So thanks for singing out. And um, I just want to say too, thank, thank you. I, I know some of you we've even gathered here after a long day and we've had a lot of different things and a lot of time out in the sun and games played. And um, I just can't believe how attentive and engaged you guys have been. So from me to you, I just want to say thank you for that all this week. Um, I, I've really been blessed by that. And it's been fun getting to talk to a few of you here and there. And I'm sorry I haven't had a chance to get to know even more of you. Um, tomorrow morning, right after the morning session, um, I'm going to have to leave and catch a, a flight in order to get home. And you guys have something different planned in the evening tomorrow night. So if anybody wanted to grab a book, please do so tonight when we're done. Because um, I'm going to have to take off right after our morning session tomorrow. But yeah, you guys have been a huge blessing to me. I mean, there's been some hard parts too. I I cry myself to sleep in my pillow every night from all the Dort hate. But (laughs) other than that, it's been fun. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much that our worship And our enjoyment of you and your enjoyment of us doesn't just happen when we gather and when we sing or when we open your word. But because this whole world is yours and because you are reclaiming everything, beachfront boardwalks are yours, roller coasters are yours, smiles and meals and games and water balloons are yours. Father, we thank you for joy. We thank you for the gift of being one of your kids. We thank you for all the ways that you delight in us and teach us to just be conscious and more and more aware um, of your presence in all of these things, so that we know, too, what they're all for. May you be glorified through that and through this. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to talk with you a little bit in our time tonight, just sort of about the path of discipleship and what it looks like um, at different stages along the way. Discipleship is really, we talked about this a little bit last night, a two steps forward, one step back kind of movement in life. And it doesn't always go according to plan. And spiritual growth isn't what we always would assume it would be. But I want us to get a couple of the big picture things straight. If I were to call up any one of your parents tonight and ask them, what is it that you want for so-and-so in life? What do you think they'd say? I think more often than not, the typical American parent answer is, I just want my kids to be happy, right? Um, If I were to ask you, what's the biggest thing you want in life? Maybe there would be some different answers. Maybe I just want to be happy or I want to be successful. I think the one thing we don't ever want to have in our lives is hardship. Um, Whenever we can avoid it, that's something that we don't want to be able to engage in. But if I were to ask Jesus this question tonight... You could have anything in life for fill in your name, what would it be? What do you think he'd say? I think he'd say, if I could have anything for them, I just want them to be mine. I think one of the hardest struggles that we have in the Western world and in the affluence that we face is we really do believe so often in our culture that the greatest purpose of life is to create the path of least resistance. That if at all possible, I just want my life to be free from pain or, let's just be honest, easy. But God's greatest goal for your life is not that it would be easy, but that you would be His. And sometimes those things stand in contradiction to one another. And so God's not going to grow you the way that you want to be grown. 
We wouldn't want pain. We don't want struggle. This morning, I woke up, went for a walk to the top of the hill. The sun was coming behind the cross, and I thought, I'm going to take this picture. I'm going to get this shot. I'm standing on the mountaintop, and I'm looking out, and I'm enjoying the view, and it's absolutely beautiful. Maybe High Camp 2015 for you is, is a mountaintop experience. Maybe it's not this. Maybe, maybe you've been to other times where you're really at a spiritual high. We even use that term, right? What do you do when you've been sort of to the top of the mountain? I thought, I thought for so long that after I'd come back from a mission trip, or I'd go away to a conference, or I'd read an amazing book, I kind of always thought that the whole point was for that to become the new normal in my Christian life. And I've realized that not only is that not possible, but it's actually not right. I think God takes us up to the mountaintops so we'll be able to see to enjoy the whole view. But the day at high camp wasn't going to come and meet me there. I had to go back down in order to meet it. God gives us moments of reprieve and rest in life. He takes us up to the mountaintop. He took Moses up to the mountaintop. Even Jesus in, this, in, the, moment, in, the, mount, in the Mount of Transfiguration, right? James and, uh, James and John are up there with him. Or sorry, Peter and John are up there with him in this moment. And, and what do they say? We should build like like tense here and we should all like settle down and just like let's like hit the pause button and freeze this moment because Jesus this is like awesome right and Jesus says no 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 and he's actually got to go back down and he's got to engage and he's got to go to the cross and we would rather stay in those moments but God I don't think mountaintop experiences are where we go to hit the pause button I think you just go and you receive it as the gift that it is But you and I both know that the rest of your life doesn't exist forever here at High Camp. The rest of your life exists when you kind of go back down into the everyday grind of wherever it is you go to school and the family that you live in and all the other stuff you got to put up with. It's easy for me to meet God when I'm there. It's harder for me to meet God when my kid wakes up at 3 o'clock in the morning crying from a nightmare. Or when one more thing went wrong or my boss asked me to get one more thing done in a day that was already full. Like, that's harder to meet God. But that's where God shapes us so much over and over and over again. And if we're not willing to accept that he wants to speak to us sometimes, in times when we don't expect it, we could totally miss everything that he has to say. I had this parenting moment with my eight-year-old a little while back. And it was one of those days where he was just doing everything naughty. And he kept getting in trouble and kept getting in trouble and kept getting in trouble. And so finally he's sitting at the dinner table and he's kind of got like this, I don't know, like this aura about him like, I'm the naughty kid, right? And I thought, we need to wipe this day away. We're going to start with a clean slate. I want to do, do something beautiful for him, right? I want to get him out of this funk. So I was like, Judah, we need to talk. Ah! And he just starts flipping out because he thinks he already knows what's coming. Okay, it just continues to spiral. He doesn't eat his supper. The crying turns into a tantrum. He ends up in his room. He's like in his room against the wall, by the floor. And on, this is what's happening, guys. By the time this tantrum was all fully done, I walk in the door. You don't love me. And he's so convinced that this horrible day of things we've had happen means that I don't love him anymore. All I wanted to ask him to do was, Judy, do you want to go get ice cream? And he couldn't even hear me because he's flipping out thinking he already knows what's all going to happen. I wanted to bless him. And he was so run off on some tantrum, convinced of what he knew what was going to happen, he couldn't even receive the blessing that I wanted to give him. And I wondered to myself when I went to bed that night, like how many times... 
Am I not doing that one? I'm so caught up in myself, and God's like, I just, if you would, I, can I, I love you? Like, can I get in here for just a minute, like, and help you out of this? God wants to take his people to the promised land. God wants beautiful things for his kids. But look at even at the story of Israel. God has to take Israel through a desert in order to get to a promised land. He's got to do the same thing with King David before he'll give him the kingdom. He's got to do the same thing with Elijah before he gets his ministry. He does the same thing with John the Baptist before he gets his authority and his voice. And he does the same thing with Jesus. This is my son whom I love, and him I am well pleased. And then immediately the Spirit thrust him into the wilderness to be tested by Satan for 40 days. Right? God says, I love you. Spirit says, go to the wilderness. What? That's how it happens. In the wilderness, God shapes us. In the wilderness, God matures us. We think that spiritual maturity and being close to God means things all going well, but it's not the case. And we have to understand that this is how, historically, God has always grown His people. This is from the book of Exodus. This is in chapter... um, 16, and so God is taking Israel through the wilderness, and they're coming to Moses now, and they're complaining because they don't have food and they don't have meat. And then they say, okay, we, and they forget all about the fact that God's just delivered them miraculously out of 430 years of slavery. And instead, they're now in the wilderness, and they're already complaining about being delivered because at least in slavery, like it was, we knew, like we knew what to expect, and there was at least food for us to eat. Now, have you brought us here to like to starve and die of thirst? That evening, quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some gathered little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. And so Jesus taught them how to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. I think Jesus didn't teach us Give us this day and the rest of the year and enough stored up for the next seven or eight years so we can really sleep peacefully tonight. Um, please, Lord. He didn't teach us to pray like that. Because God loves keeping his children in a place of dependence. And he was teaching Israel. I think the Exodus season is sort of like Israel's like teenage, early adult years. Right? Like he's, he's, he's living, he's teaching them, he's growing them, he's really letting them sort of spread their wings a little bit more on their own, and he's teaching them dependence on him. He's teaching them that your identity, your identity as a people, of the people of God, are going to be the ones who get fed by me. They're going to get fed by me continually, but you've got to rely on me. You've got to stay in that place. Like, there's a purpose and a reason why God wouldn't give them this. In fact, if they kept it longer, as the passage keeps going, if they tried to take too much and store it overnight, it did what? It rotted and it got maggots in it. It turned absolutely disgusting. And God's teaching them. This is what God does for us too. God will not show you what tomorrow or next week or next year looks like. Because often, if, or if God ever did do that, we would think we had things all figured out and we stopped depending on him. So God loves us so much that he will not show you the future. God loves you so much that he will take you into a desert season at times. And it doesn't mean he doesn't love you. 
It just means that His end game for you is different. Because God's greatest purpose for you in life is not that your life would be easy, but that your life would be His. And those are very different things. God takes away also the things that once were comfortable for us. I don't know if you've ever been on a date with someone before and like it went really, really well. You could not call that person up, go back out the next Friday, repeat all the same things, eat the same meal at the same restaurant, have the same conversations, and it'd be just as cool. It would not happen. It can't happen. You can't do that. Relationships don't work like that. God doesn't work like that. Traditions in Christianity can be a beautiful, beautiful thing. They shape us. They can be like the the liturgies, right? The practices of our faith that grow us. But when they become a false security blanket for us, then God needs to break us of that so we don't find comfort in them, but comfort in Him. It's one degree removed, but it's a huge danger that we have. We'll show you a story how God did this with Moses and became one of the most significant events in his life. You might remember this story. This is one chapter later. The Lord answered Moses, Go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. So God takes Moses up and says to him, I'm going to elevate you in front of the people. They're complaining they don't have water. I'm going to show them that I can make water come out of a rock and that I am leading them and they don't need to be afraid. And even if they can't see water on the horizon, I will make water appear when they need it because I love my kids. And I'm growing them right now, Moses, but I need them to see that they need to trust me and they need to trust you. So this is what we're going to do. Remember that staff, right? That staff Moses has been carrying for a long time. When he first met God at the burning bush, it was one of the things he had to throw down. He had to throw it down in front of Pharaoh and ate the other snakes when they were there and he had to strike the Nile with it. It kind of becomes like, it's the symbol, right? And we get this plague in, this, in the wilderness is what people all had to look up, look up to and they were healed from. And so this, this staff becomes like this thing. It's a symbol of, of power um, of God being with Moses and it's sort of his strength. So, and it happens here again. Now, a little later in the journey, all still in the wilderness journey. Go to the next. Come on. Okay, so this is from the book of Numbers now. Numbers chapter 20. See if this sounds like the last story we just heard. In the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zin, and they stayed at Kadesh. There Miriam died and was buried. Now there was no water in the, for the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. Poor Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and said... If only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this wilderness? That we and our livestock should die here. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It is no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Moses and Aaron went out from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting and fell face down, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, Take the staff, and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. If you bring the water out of the rock for the community, so they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence, just as he had commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I will give them. These were the waters of Meribah, where the Israelites quarreled with the Lord and where he was proved holy among them. 
I never understood this passage as a kid. I thought, this is so weird. Like, Moses done all these things. Like, God has lived, made him live this incredible life, and now this is the moment where he kind of does, he crosses some line and can't go into the promised land, and God's all angry with him. The first time, God told him to come up and strike the rock, and he did it, and then God lifted him up in front of the people. The next time, they're in a similar situation again. People still haven't learned. Moses does the same thing, strikes the rock with his staff, water comes out, and this time God's angry. So what's the deal? Did you catch it in the passage? What did God actually ask him to do? Speak to the rock. We'll go back one screen here. There it is. It's not the fact that Moses says, listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? That's what I always thought it was, that God got angry at them. But it's that Moses didn't do what God said. Moses starts trusting in his staff. God says to him, speak to the rock. And instead Moses takes a stick and he hits the rock, just like it did last time, because the stick has done this for him. It's sort of like his little security blanket, right? And he's learning to trust in it and not in the Lord. And I think sometimes God takes the things that we thought we already knew, or we thought were ways that he shows up for us, and then all of a sudden they don't work anymore. I always thought that if I just found the right spiritual practices, like if I just got the right devotional activity down, if I just prayed at this time of day, if I just did it this way, then God will always respond to me and we'll just sort of have this thing and that will be where I meet God. And I've realized that our attention spans just simply don't work like that. So God doesn't love us like that. God won't give us what we want. God will give us what we need. God won't keep us in a place of security. God will keep us in a place of dependence. God's greatest goal for your life is not that it would be easy, but that you would be His. And God's often got to kind of break us down again in order to get us back there, and break us down again in order to get us back there. And so He takes us on this journey. Just like the Israelites in the wilderness. And they didn't stay there. God had plans to move from them beyond there into the promised land, but they had to go through this stage. David was going to be king of Israel. God had promised it to him, but he had to go through the wilderness. He had to be chased by Saul. He had to go through all those things. Elijah had to go through this period in his life. And so there will be times, and I'm telling you right now, maybe this week for you is a total mountaintop experience. Maybe this week for you is absolutely hard, and inside you're actually having a, a desert season and not a mountaintop experience. But either way, you just simply have to know, you have to know, these are the two things that I always go back to over everybody with the Lord when I'm sitting there talking to students and they're wrestling through issues. I don't know the outcome of this situation, I'll tell them. I can't promise you what tomorrow will bring. I don't know if they're going to date you. I don't know if your dad's not going to be angry anymore. I don't know if you're going to have enough money for college next year. I don't know if this whole roommate kerfuffle is all going to solve itself. I don't know if you're going to make the football team or the starting lineup. I don't know. I know this. God is good, and he is for you. And at the end of the day, that might be the only thing I can ever offer you at the end of the day. But this I know. God is good, And he is for you. And I know this too. God is the most efficient thing the world has ever seen. We can screw stuff up and then God will use that and make it for his glory and for his good. God wastes nothing. Even the hurts in your life, he will turn around and use for good. All things. All things for the good of those who love him. Romans 8, right? All things. I remember standing in front of a college crowd in the first chapel I ever had to do at Dort. 
basketball team player had died in the summer. A horrible, horrific death. Blown off a mountain by a bolt of lightning. Fell 2,000 feet. It was awful. First chapel, everybody's standing there. And the text I was given to preach and to talk on was from Romans 8. God works for the good of those who love him in all things. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him. And i got to sin. all things? Really? All things? Like this, God? This? And a 19, 20-year-old guy? This? All things. All of them. God will use everything for his glory and to draw you close to him. Open your eyes wider. See everything around you that's happening in life, every opportunity. God will not waste any of them. He'll redeem what is broken. He'll give what's beautiful. He'll put them all together. And He'll give it to you. You see, we're chasing after a kingdom in this world whose doors you can't kick in. You can't reach out and grab this kingdom. It can only be given to you. You can only receive it. We don't make our own breaks. We don't create our own opportunities. We don't push people around in order to get to where we want to be. Conventional wisdom in the world will say things like, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Whatever you did for the least of these, you did it for me. Jesus says, look at the other end of the totem pole. That's the one that I'm interested in. You've got to go out in your youth and you've got you to go find yourself, right? That's conventional wisdom. You've got to find yourself. Anyone who finds their life will lose it, but anybody who loses their life for my sake will find it. That's what Jesus said. So these are very competing ideologies now in our life, aren't they? Are we willing to surrender everything to Christ along the journey? I tell our students at Dort things like this all the time. If you want to embrace the values of the kingdom, we're not going to push it to get ahead we're going to become least, we're going to finish last, we're going to get lost. How's that for a pep talk? Become least, finish last, get lost. This is what disciples do. Because you don't have the weight of the world resting on your shoulders. Christ did it for you. And if we will let it go to him, then he'll give us back a kingdom. But it's going to be on his terms and not ours. Pray again with me. Father, discipleship is hard. And we don't like desert seasons. And we don't like hard times. And we don't like it when you feel distant. And we don't like it when we feel distant from you. Father, help us to know in our heart of hearts, in the core of our being, that you are good and that you are for us. And that when we can't see over the next mountain or even out of the valley that we're in, that yet you are good and you are for us. Father, I don't know where any of these students are here today. The things that they're struggling with in life, the pains that they feel, the heartaches, the things that people have done to them or said to them, the ways that they stand in loneliness or in uncertainty of their future. Father, we're just going to claim that we know that you are good and you are for us. And for this we give you praise in every season of life. We know that you, in all things, 
Work for the good of those who love you. This we claim. In Jesus' name. Amen.
you are. Come as you are.